Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we got a whimsical one for you folks. Today we're going to be talking about Tom Bombadil. What is he? Where does he come from? What powers does he have? I seek to answer those questions that you may have with my own theories. And, you know, I want to do it as good as possible while also maintaining kind of a non-serious approach to this difficult topic. All right. And without further ado, let's jump right into it. So where do we start? I'm going to start by giving kind of a brief summary of the Tom Bombadil story in The Fellowship of the Ring. And then I'm going to use that summary to jump into who I think he is, you know, what his nature is and stuff like that. So I'm not going to go too into detail because the story would take a long time. I'm just kind of going to do an overview of the whole thing. So we drop in with the hobbits and they have just left the Shire. They've left the borders of the Shire and they have entered into what's known to them as the Old Forest. Now this Old Forest, it's got a lot of mystery and kind of urban legends to them. So they're they're a bit nervous going in. You know, there's a lot of rumors about the creatures that exist within the Old Forest. So we drop in on them and they are trying to get through. Again, they're, they want to get to Bree. Now going through the Old Forest they kind of start wandering around. They get lost. Uh, they don't really know where they're going. You know, they're not sure which ways east, west, north. And the whole time being in the old forest, there's this feeling of creepiness. Like they're all constantly feeling nervous by the noises and the oppressiveness of the trees around them. And they feel like they're, you know, like they're being watched, like the forest is actively working against them to kind of keep them from getting to their goal. They feel like the forest is angry. You know, there's this feeling, like I said, of oppressiveness going through. And finally, they reach this point where they're they're really tired and they kind of stop by a willow tree. And there's something about this willow tree that is, is it's making them tired. You know, they, they just want to rest for a second. And as they're resting, they're getting this sense that the willow tree that they have decided to park under is singing to them. Like the leaves, they're getting this sense that the leaves are almost singing like a lullaby. And they all become very tired. And you have Frodo, Mary, and Pippin who just pass out. And Frodo basically kind of like falls into the water, like after he's passed out. Sam, of course, is the only one who's awake because we know Sam. He's very weary of his surroundings. And he he really didn't like the, like the way it felt around this willow tree. Um, and he notices that Frodo falls into the water and he's kind of being held into the water by one of the roots of this tree. And Sam rescues Frodo, but Sam is still like... He doesn't really know what's fully going on yet. Like Frodo says that he felt this sensation of being forced into the water by the tree. And Sam basically says to him like, oh no, Mr. Frodo, like you, you're just, you're just dreaming. Like you fell asleep. And then we see all of a sudden, you know, Mary and Pippin start screaming and making noises. They're being closed in by the roots of this tree because they had rested themselves up against the willow tree to take a quick nap. And 
Now they're being sucked into it. The roots are enclosing over them. And it's at this moment that as Sam and Frodo are trying to free them from the grasps of this willow tree that they can start hear what sounds like a faraway laughter. And what that actually is, is there's laughter coming up from the top of the tree. The tree is making fun of them in this moment. Then Sam and Frodo try to light the tree. They try to light it on fire and they get out fire and they hold it up to the tree and then all of a sudden the tree starts closing tighter on to Mary and Pippin and they're like no please like put like put out the fire put out the fire you're just making it angry. So they put out the fire and then they're panicking and then it's amidst this panic that they hear a singing coming up down the path. And it sounds something like, hey doll, Mary doll. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do the Tom Bombadil song. But anyway, they hear this singing coming up from the path. It's a male voice. And Frodo and Sam, in a panic, like run directly to the singing. And it's at this moment that we are introduced to a whimsical, sing-songy character that Frodo and Sam beg for help from on the path. Now, this character that we get introduced to, I'm going to read real quick his description from the book. It says, With another hop and a bound, there came into view a man, or so it seemed. At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people, though he made noise enough for one, stumping along with great yellow boots on his thick legs and charging through grass and rushes like a cow going down to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright, and his face was red as a ripe apple, but creased into a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands he carried on a large leaf, as on a tray, a small pile of white water lilies. So, there's our first description of Tom Bombadil. He is too big to be a hobbit. But it's also described as kind of too short to be a man. And Frodo and Sam come running up to him, asking him for help. And they go on to, to ask him for help. And they're, they're saying how their friend is stuck in the willow tree. And Tom offers to help them in this moment. So they then go over to the tree together. And Tom commands the willow tree to go to sleep and let go of their friends. So Frodo and Sam, they run to this random singing man or man-like being and he offers his help and he commands the willow tree to let them go. And then it's in this moment after their rescue that Tom so kindly invites them back to his house and they follow him down this kind of mysterious road to his house in the wood where they come and meet a female character who is Tom's wife, and her name is Goldberry. Now, this is a really interesting moment because I feel like people get a, um, they get really confused about this description that we are given of Goldberry by Frodo. So I'm going to read it because I think that this is where some, this is where we need to clear some things up a little bit. Enter, good guest, she said, and as she spoke, they knew that it was her clear voice that they had heard singing, because as they approached the house, they heard her singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. All right, now I want to clear that up because I think 
when people picture Goldberry, a lot of the times they have this misunderstanding that she is an elf. And I'm of the opinion that that couldn't be further from the truth. She is not an elf. I think that this is just a literary description that Tolkien is using here to kind of describe how shockingly ethereal, you know, she appeared to the hobbits in that moment and beautiful as well. You know, I think that this is kind of the same thing where people get confused about the Balrogs having wings issue. It's just a description. Like the Balrog doesn't really have wings. It's just kind of described as like shadow going out like wings. Here we have also kind of similar thing going on. Goldberry is being described as beautiful like an elf queen, but not really. And this is going to wrap into who I think she is and who I think Tom is as well. So it's an important point to make here. But anyway, Goldberry welcomes them into the house and we get that description there. The hobbits are given a place to rest and a place to eat dinner. You know, they, they Goldberry kind of puts out uh, a table for them and they stay here for the night at Tom Bombadil's house. And while Tom is out tending to the hobbits' ponies, uh, Frodo has a really interesting exchange with Goldberry in the kitchen. So Tom is not present in the room. He has brought the hobbits back to his home for rest over their long journey because it was at this point when he first finds them at the willow tree, I believe it's probably like around 4 p.m. or something. So he's giving them shelter for the night. So anyway, he's out tending their ponies and Frodo and Goldberry are having a discussion in the kitchen. And Frodo asks, who is Tom Bombadil? You know, he's like, who is this guy who is commanding the tree? And she says something interesting. She says, he is. So Frodo asks, who is Tom Bombadil? Goldberry says, he is. And that's it. That's all she says. And then she goes on and says, he is as you have seen him. He is the master of wood water and hill and then frodo says then all this strange land belongs to him talking about the old forest and she says no indeed she answered and her smile faded that would indeed be a burden she added in a low voice as if to herself the trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves tom bombadil is the master no one has ever caught old tom walking in the forest wading in the water leaping on the hilltops under light and shadow he has no fear tom bombadil is the master so we get this description of her like describing him as some kind of master of nature you know she says master of wood water and hill so nature so keep that in mind and it's at this point that they are interrupted abruptly by tom bombadil who now enters back into the house after tending outside and then tom comes in everybody sits down for dinner they have a great dinner and then they go from dinner to relaxing in his i guess if you want to call it his party room in his house uh it's in front of a fireplace everybody's chilling there's chairs set up there are beds waiting for the hobbits everyone is relaxing and settling down to go to sleep for the evening and they're relaxing and frodo looks at tom and he says to him hey you know did you hear me calling for help earlier at the willow tree like how did you know to come did you hear me calling and Tom says something interesting here that is tied directly in with divine providence. Tom says, oh, it was just by chance. Just by chance brought me, if chance you could call it. So the implication there is that Tom was there for a reason. He was there by chance to him. That's what it felt like. But he was there for a reason to help the hobbits. So another thing, keep that in mind. 
So we're going forward. We have a little bit of divine providence here. He was at the right place at the right time. And then they go to sleep, and Frodo, in his sleep at Tom Bombadil's house, actually has a dream. I thought that this was interesting. He has a dream about what is currently happening to Gandalf at this moment in time. Gandalf, at this moment in time, is being plucked by Gwaihir from the clutches of Saruman on top of the Tower of Orthanc. And Frodo actually dreams it as it's happening. So, interesting bit of storytelling here where we are kind of being connected to the greater picture in time that yes the hobbits are at this point in the old forest but there are other things in the story happening elsewhere and we're being a a, we're being given a taste of those other things in this moment so then they wake up the next day and they spend the day with tom listening to him tell stories of the old forest because the hobbits have all these questions about the mysteries of the old forest you know because they have lived on its borders for so long so they just want to know they want clarification about these things and they are listening to and tom is more than willing to rant about them for hours and hours and we have a really interesting quote from page 127 that is actually the quote that Peter Jackson gives to Treebeard in the Two Towers and I'll I'll read it to you here. So Tom is is getting into the nature of the old forest and all of the creatures that live in there and he starts talking about the trees and these these spirits that are in the trees. Now pay attention to all this because this is going to tie into my end point that I want to make about Tom Bombadil. So Tom says The hearts of trees and their thoughts, which were often dark and strange and filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, destroyers and usurpers. It was not called the old forest without reason, for it was indeed ancient, a survivor of vast forgotten woods. So here we are given the view that the trees have of that the majority of trees have of things that walk around things that are rootless they they don't like them they don't care for them they see them as destroyers and usurpers you know like treebeard says in uh in the two towers and you know i thought it was interesting it's like and this comes up multiple times during the Tom Bombadil storyline. You know, there's a lot. All right, Peter Jackson didn't include this whole thing with Tom Bombadil. And he did that for cinematic reasons, I think. I think it was a good decision because I think that for a movie, it would have just been too much of a veer off of the main storyline. You know, you can do something like this in a book easily. But Peter Jackson really went out of his way to include the themes that kind of come up over and over again in the Tom Bombadil story. And this is one of those. So I thought that was... It's fun to read, you know, when you go back and you look at it. So we get that portion of um, Tom describing the history of the old forest. And then they start discussing the Barrow Downs, which border his uh, area of the old forest. Now, the Barrow Downs are, they have a history that go all the way back to the First Age, okay? The Barrow Downs were made famous and they were made significant by the kingdom of Arnor. And as you know, the kingdom of Arnor, that was the northern kingdom when the faithful had retreated to Middle-earth from the destruction of Numenor. Two kingdoms were founded. One was the kingdom of Arnor in the north and one the kingdom of Gondor in the south. And those two kingdoms split. And the kings 
and lords of Arnor would bury their dead in this large portion of the country. It was a, it was a hilly area, and that's where they would bury the uh, important and prominent people in society who died there. And it, it, was, a, it was a very venerated area. And the kingdom of Arnor um, chose that area because it was also a place that the first men who woke up in the world during the first age would bury their dead before they came over the mountains into Beleriand. So this was a very important place for men. And Tom is kind of giving a brief description of the area and he's talking about how the it was an important place for the men of the north. And I'll give you his description of what happened to this place that was very important to them. It says, A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places, with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. So what he is describing there is when the war happened, between the men of the north and the witch king of Angmar. The witch king conquered the Barrow Downs. He took the Barrow Downs and then he desecrated it. What he did was he took evil spirits that were under his control and he sent them into the Barrow Downs to occupy the uh, remains of the kings who lied there. And so the Barrow Downs were filled with these uh, ghosts ever since then. They were haunted by these evil spirits. But they weren't the spirits of the men who were laid there. They were spirits that were occupying the remains of the men who were laid there. And that's who the Barrow Whites were. They were these evil spirits that were occupying the tombs that were sent there by the Witch King because it was his goal to really just desecrate everything that was sacred to the men of the North. But anyway, so giving you a brief history there, and Tom is talking about this with the hobbits, and then they move on. Then through all this talking, Frodo kind of just, he gets to a point where he just mans up and is like, all right, who are you? You know, how do you know all this stuff? He's like, he says, who are you, master? And then Tom's, Tom responds with this. Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you alone yourself and nameless? But you are young, and I am old. Eldest. That's what I am. Mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrow whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already. Before the seas were bent, he knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless before the Dark Lord came from outside. So, in this, this is a very descriptive uh, paragraph full of time periods that Tom is describing here. So he says, I was here before the hobbits arrived in the Shire. I was here before the kings and the graves and the barrow whites. So I was here before men of the north made their graves here. And then he says, I was here before the seas were bent. Now, if you remember, the earth up until Numenor is destroyed was flat. Arda, Arda is the earth. Arda was flat uh, before Iluvatar broke and and terraformed the earth after men tried to invade Valinor. So he's saying that I was here before then. And then he says, I was here 
in Arda before the Dark Lord came from outside. And what that means is he was in the physical realms of the earth before Morgoth entered into the physical realm. See, when the earth was originally formed by Iluvatar's thought, now, if you remember, Iluvatar is Tolkien's creator god. When the Earth was originally formed, Morgoth had not entered it yet. So the Earth gets formed, and Iluvatar sends the the Valar. He sends Manwe uh, along with the rest that went with him down into the Earth to govern it and to bring more life into it. And it wasn't until Morgoth looked upon Arda with jealousy for Manwe that he entered into the world so that he could ruin it. So Tom is saying here that I was in the world before Morgoth was in the world. So he's saying that he was existing within the physical realm before Morgoth was even there and before anything in the physical realm knew fear of Morgoth. So that's... That's a statement. That's quite a long time. So he is claiming to be really the oldest creature in Arda that did not originate outside of Arda, if that makes sense. So keep that in mind. Keep that description in mind. So after that exchange, they finally get to the subject of Frodo's mission at hand, right? Tom asks to see this precious ring that everybody's so obsessed over. And I mean... I'm not going to do it justice unless I just read to you what happens. So Frodo hands Tom the ring and we get this description here. It seemed to grow larger as it lay for a moment on his big brown skinned hand. So again, we, we get another description of the ring trying to adapt to the size of the finger of a person who could potentially wear it. So because remember, the ring can change sizes. Then suddenly he put it to his eye and laughed. For a second, the hobbits had a vision both comical and alarming, of his bright blue eye gleaming through a circle of gold. Then Tom put the ring round the end of his little finger. So Tom puts on the ring at this point and held it up to the candlelight. For a moment, the hobbits noticed nothing strange about this. Then they gasped. There was no sign of Tom disappearing. So Tom puts on the ring and nothing happens. And then it says... That Tom kind of laughs and does like a little trick with the ring, makes it disappear for a second, and then gives it back to Frodo. So we have a really interesting thing happening here. The ring clearly has no effect on Tom. It's powers are not noticeable when he slides it on or at the very least we see that he is a spirit that occupies both the physical and spiritual realm at this point because that's what we know about beings that occupy both realms is they don't become invisible you know men and hobbits when they put it on they become invisible because they're entering into the unseen realm so now we see that tom at the very least is something that occupies both but we're also seeing that like there's a very <laughs> whimsical approach here to the ring on tom's end there isn't a hint of seriousness you know he's laughing he's doing little um illusion tricks with it and then he gives it most importantly he gives it back to frodo willingly and with no issue so then they kind of move on in their discussion and Tom continues talking and then something else interesting happens. Frodo, just for whatever reason, decides that he wants to just be funny and he slides the ring on himself and wants to go slip out of the room. And Tom sees Frodo with the ring on still 
after he's gone invisible. And he like he's like, what are you doing, man? Go go sit down. I see you. I see you trying to leave. Like, I, I, I'm talking still. I, I still got more stuff to say. So now we see that not only does the ring have no effect on Tom at all whatsoever, but he can also see, he can still see Frodo, like, while he's wearing it. So it doesn't affect his ability to see creatures who are wearing it as well. So another interesting point that we have. And then after this discussion takes place, they go to bed and they get up the next morning. And then that's when they're kind of getting ready to go. And Tom is seeing him off. Um, but what's interesting is what happens during that night is Frodo has another dream. And what's interesting about this dream that Frodo has is we have another moment here where Peter Jackson takes something from the Tom Bombadil storyline. He takes the theme and he adds it into the movie. Now I'm going to read here because it's, I just love it so much. It says, but either in his dreams, this is Frodo. Or out of them. He could not tell which. Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind. A song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain. And growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver. Until at last it was rolled back. And a far green country opened before him. Under a swift sunrise so in this moment we have frodo who is having a dream of valinor he is having a dream of the undying lands and if you remember in the return of the king movies peter jackson took that exact description he changed the words up a little bit but it's mostly the same he took that description and he had gandalf say that to pippin when they were facing all of the enemy forces at the door do you remember they have that moment i think it it might actually only be in the extended edition but they have that moment where where pippin says i didn't know that this was going to be the end and then gandalf says end you know this isn't the end death is just another path and then he starts describing what you see after you die and it's that description right there from frodo's dream of valinor so again it's like you see that stuff and you're like oh yeah you know i remember that from the movies you know and i don't think that i had noticed that before i was doing my uh reread of this chapter for this podcast and i don't think that stuck out to me before so you know again i just love seeing stuff like that and i love the peter jackson movies so much All right, so then we have everybody getting up the next day, and Tom is seeing them all off. He's giving them supplies, he's giving them directions, and he gives Frodo a song to sing. For if Frodo requires his help, and he's still within the bounds of where Tom Bombadil lives, like, he gives them a song to sing. Like, hey, if you need any further help before you get too far away, you know, sing it, and I'll be right there. So the hobbits head off into the direction of the Barrow Downs. You remember I described the Barrow Downs earlier. So they head off into the direction of the Downs, and Tom Bombadil and his wife Goldberry are seeing them off. And it describes, you know, Goldberry getting smaller and smaller until she kind of fades away and, and turns around and finally disappears from Frodo's sight. And then they keep going and they enter within the bounds of the Barrow Downs. And it's kind of describing the things that they're seeing and then like a thick fog sets in. So they're walking through these grave mounds and they decide to walk a single file because they don't want to lose each other in this thick fog that has all of a sudden kind of settled in. 
And, you know, it's it's getting really it's it's hard to f- kind of figure out exactly where they're going because they, they can't see beyond this fog. And then something happens. Frodo gets separated from everyone and he, he starts to get worried. He starts to get scared. He's calling out to uh, Mary, Pippin and Sam. He's calling out to them and then he hears voices calling his name back to him coming out of this fog, but he never actually finds the source of the voices. And he thinks that it's Sam, Mary, and Pippin calling for him. So he's calling back and he he can't find them. So all these he hears all these voices around him that he thinks are his fellow company. But when he goes into the direction of those other voices, he never actually gets to them, making him even more lost than he was to begin with. So it's Frodo, and he's separated from everyone else. And, you know, you get this kind of, like, this, there's a long description of just creepiness that's happening. And it, and it really reminds me of the way Peter Jackson had depicted um, when Bilbo and the dwarves got lost in Mirkwood in the movies. I really like that depiction and it, and it kind of reminds me. So to give you a description, it's almost like that. Like there's all these voices and people and Frodo keeps getting turned around and he's hearing all these noises. And then all of a sudden he shouts out again, like trying to get Sam, Mary and Pippin's attention. He says, where are you? cries it out angry and afraid it says and then all of a sudden a voice uh, you get this creepy description back it says here said a voice deep and cold that seemed to come out of the ground i am waiting for you the voice said and frodo being obviously scared of this voice because it doesn't sound like anyone he knows he says no said frodo but he did not run away his knees gave and he fell on the ground Nothing happened and there was no sound. You remember, he's just, he is just in the midst of this fog, in the middle of what is essentially a giant graveyard of kings, a haunted graveyard of kings. It says, and there was no sound. Trembling, he looked up in time to see a tall, dark figure like a shadow against the stars. It leaned over him. He thought there were two eyes, very cold though lit with a pale light that seemed to come from some remote distance. Then a grip, stronger and colder than iron, seized him. The icy touch froze his bones and he remembered no more. This is actually one of the things that I like to explore about, you know, Tolkien that I feel like the movies don't get to as much is that there's a lot of like scary sections. Tolkien is really good at creating a horror scene, you know, and I think that that's something the Rings of Power could explore a little bit more. And I know I didn't do that scene justice at all, but when you read about this scene, you really feel this kind of sense of dread coming from Frodo. Um, So I love it. I think this would have made a great movie scene. I understand why Peter Jackson didn't include this, because if you include this part, you have to include Tom Bombadil, and I can see why that, like I said before, that would get very complicated. But this is like, I mean, if you were going to make a movie, this is a great scene to have in it right here. This, this, it's, again, I didn't do it justice, but it's scary when you read it. So let's, let's go back to the story and we have that happen. And Frodo wakes up in the dark. He's in this cavern, this, this stone room, and there is a pale, like green light kind of around him that is like a sickly light that's 
casting just a just a little bit enough so his eyes can see but it's still dark and he looks over and he sees sam mary and pippin and they are passed out on the ground they're they're all knocked out and they are dressed in like this uh, they have jewelry hanging all over them they're wearing these uh circlet crowns on their heads and they're lying single file on the ground so they're right next to each other and then there is a long sword sprawled out across their necks and frodo sees this and he's super creeped out and then all of a sudden this weird like the the pale light kind of gets a little bit brighter and it says suddenly a song began a cold now remember they're they're in like a dark room and frodo hears this song and it says a cold murmur rising and falling the voice seemed far away and immeasurably dreary sometimes high in the air and thin sometimes like a low moan from the ground out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds strings of words would now and again shape themselves grim hard cold words heartless and miserable so Frodo is in there. He sees this sight of Sam, Mary, and Pippin. They're sitting there. They have this sword going across their necks. They're decked out in all this jewelry. He doesn't know what's going on. And then this creepy song starts to pick up, almost as if it's like coming from the floor. And he doesn't know what's being said. And then all of a sudden, it kind of, the song, it says, after what I just read, that the song kind of starts to form into words that Frodo can understand. And he suddenly begins to be able to make out a tune from this creepy voice that seems to be just echoing from the walls of the room around him. And the song is, and you might even recognize the words a little bit, Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone, nevermore to wake on stony bed, Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. And then it goes on a couple more lines. But I just wanted to read that first part because you might recognize that a little bit from the two towers. Again, here we have another example of what I appreciate. Peter Jackson taking an effort to include the Tom Bombadil storyline in the movie, even though he didn't include Tom Bombadil. When they're in the dead marshes, Frodo runs up to Gollum. And you might remember the scene, Frodo says, um, you know, you were not so different from a hobbit once, Smeagol. But in that part, Smeagol is um, muttering this poem to himself. And it's, it's not the same exact words because I think he says, cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be travels far from home. I think that that was a replacement that they did for the movies. But then they go on and it says, till the sun fails and the moon is dead. And Gollum says that in the movies as well. So they changed up the words a little bit, but they took the poem from this story and had Smeagol mumbling it to himself, which I appreciate. And then what happens is Frodo looks down this, uh, this hallway and he sees like through the pale green light um when he hears these words being said he sees this hand this like dark kind of ghostly hand creeping its way down the hallway and it's walking on the fingers on the long creepy fingers and frodo sees this and he is terrified and he sees that the hand is reaching out for the sword that is placed on Sam, Mary, and Pippin. So what we have here is this Barrow White that has captured Frodo. Remember I, I mentioned the um, 
the evil spirits that the Witch King had sent to occupy the remains of the kings that were in the Barrow Downs. This is one of those things. One of those things is trying to kill Frodo and his friends. That's trying to entrap them inside this barrow. And that's what the, the incantation it was singing. It was trying to sing like a curse on them to, to keep them inside this mound. And so Frodo sees this hand walking across the floor on its fingers and he panics. And his first instinct is to run. Like, he wants to run out of this place that he is now trapped in. Uh, and he has, like, sort of a weak moment where he's tempted to just leave his friends behind. But courage overtakes him, and he grabs a random knife that he picks up off the floor. And he slashes at the hand and slices it off. And then he hears, like, a like a loud, kind of disturbing, like, screeching noise. And then he recalls in this moment, like, he's like, what do I do? What do I do? How do I, how do I get out of here? How do I get my friends out of here? here and he recalls the song that tom bombadil taught to him like hey i'll come help you out if you're close enough to you know my borders or on your way out if you need help like call me so he he recalls this song and he sings it and then he starts to hear tom singing back in response his own song and it's kind of like a it's a vague it starts off vague and then it builds you know he can hear tom's song get louder you know it's i'll say it for you Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. And then, it says, in the um, grave that they're in, the uh, barrow that they're in, and bonus bit of information here. What's interesting about a barrow is, you know, I, I love this inclusion of like history that Tolkien uh, puts in the legendarium. You know, a barrow is something that's very much related to like Norse culture, Viking mythology. There was a lot of burying of dead within giant mounds, like burial mounds. Uh, those burial mounds would have like uh, underground halls sometimes. Sometimes you would have multiple uh, members, maybe of the same family, buried in the same place. And there was a lot of different burial practices sometimes. I mean, we all know about the one where the they're placed in the ship and buried in the ship or they're, the ship is actually pushed out and set on fire. But uh, a burial mound was another kind of method of that like northern european way of burying important people um so that's kind of what we're picturing here this it's it's almost like a little hill that has underground carved out hall in it but anyway so they're in this mound and frodo hears tom bombadil singing and then there was a loud rumbling noise and the doors smash open the front of the mound crumbles and there standing at the door is tom bombadil and then he says this to this barrow white that's trying to kill frodo and his friends he says get out you old white vanish in the sunlight shrivel like the cold mists like the wind goes wailing out in the barren lands far beyond the mountains come never here again leave your barrow empty lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness where gates stand forever shut Till the world is mended. So he is commanding this thing to leave. He is commanding it to leave and to not come back. 
and to retreat to the shadow until the world is mended. So we have a great little, I just wanted to include this here, uh, a nod to Tolkien's kind of teleology, this plan that he has, this this divine plan that he has for his universe that he's created. Um, what Iluvatar, Tolkien's creator god's plan, is to, if you recall, he created the earth with song. Unfortunately, that song had uh, Melkor's discord sewn into it, which um, put evil into the world. But the plan is to, in the final days, to sing a new song and to create a a new universe that does not have evil sewn into it. So that's what it means right there, where where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. That's that's what's going to happen when the world gets mended, is there's going to be a new song where discord is not sewn into the very earth itself. And at this moment, you know, the, the white disappears, and Tom wakes them up, and he feeds them, he clothes them, he goes and finds their ponies, of course, because their ponies ran off. And then Tom gives them some daggers, actually, from the barrow that were in there. And, and he hands them each a dagger, and there's a description of what they look like. And these, of course, are the daggers that Sam, Mary, Pippin carry around for the rest of the trilogy. And he says, These blades were forged many long years ago by men of Westerness. They were foes of the Dark Lord, but they were overcome by the evil king of Karndum in the land of Angmar. So he's talking about the king of uh, the kingdom of Arnor and the war that they had with the witch king of Angmar, who of course was under the orders of Sauron secretly. Karndum was his capital, by the way, in Angmar, for those of you who are curious. And then he says, "Few now remember them," Tom murmured. Yet still some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings walking in loneliness guarding from evil things, folk that are heedless. So in this moment, he's talking about Aragorn, of course. Aragorn is the son of a forgotten king, guarding folk that are heedless. All right. So that pretty much, I mean, that wraps up that part of the storyline. After this, you know, he sends the hobbits on on their way, and then we don't see Tom Bombadil for the rest of the time. He is mentioned, um later and we'll talk about that a little bit but this is the end of his kind of story with the hobbits so i'm going to fast forward a little bit to the council of elrond so i want to touch on these two pages from the uh, council of elrond where they bring up uh, tom bombadil's portion in the story and elrond he starts talking about how he knew bombadil when he used to wander through the old forest and you know, he mentions his many names. So this is an interesting point here where we get this character that we have of Tom Bombadil. Basically, how we as the reader views Tom Bombadil is through the perspective of Hobbit lore about Tom Bombadil. So you hear the name Tom Bombadil, and it sounds kind of out of place, you know, among the many names that are in Tolkien's Legendarium, right? And that's because this is from the perspective of the Hobbits. So that's an interesting point. We just want to keep in there. So we find out that Tom Bombadil has many names among, you know, many of the different races that have interacted with him. 
Like, uh, for instance, he's known to the dwarves as Forn, which I think that has something to do with, with being old as it's translated. Um, but anyway, so moving on. So, so Elrond goes through his names and then people kind of start, the you know, the, they start bringing Bombadil into the discussion on maybe how to solve the issue with the ring. And Elrond suggests maybe I should have invited him to this council. And Gandalf is like, no, you know, he wouldn't have shown up. And then we have this interesting exchange where um, I'm just going to read this whole thing because I think that it's it's crucial to have all this on here to get the proper perspective of not just what Tom is, but what he definitely is not. So someone says, could we could we obtain his help? Uh, it seems that he has a power even over the ring. And Gandalf says, no, I should not put it so. Say rather that the ring has no power over him. He is his own master, but he cannot alter the ring itself, nor break its powers over others. And now he is withdrawn into a little land within bounds that he has set, though none can see them, waiting perhaps for a change of days, and he will not step beyond them. And then someone suggests, would he not take the ring and keep it there forever harmless? So someone someone suggests that maybe Tom Bombadil could take the ring and keep it in the old forest where the enemy would never know about it. And then Gandalf says, no, not willingly. He might do so if all the free folk of the world begged him, that is, to take the ring. But he would not understand the need, and if he were given the ring, he would soon forget it, or most likely throw it away. Such things have no hold on his mind. He would be a most unsafe guardian, and that alone is answer enough. So he's saying, like, no, we can't give Tom Bombadil the ring, because he would lose it. You know, he doesn't care enough about this situation to help us in the way that we need to be helped. And then we have Glorfindel, who is, in my opinion, the most wronged and slighted character in the Loder universe. He speaks up and he says, but in any case, to send the ring to him would only postpone the day of evil. He is far away. We could not now take it back to him unguessed, unmarked by any spy. And even if we could, soon or late, the Lord of the Rings, Sauron, would learn of its hiding place and would bend all his power towards it. Could that power be defied by Bombadil alone? I think not. I think that in the end, if all else is conquered, Bombadil will fall last as he was first, and then night will come. And then another character, Galdor, chimes in and he says, But Glorfindel, I think, is right. Power to defy our enemy is not in him. Talking about Tom Bombadil. Unless such power, and this is crucial right here, unless such power is in the earth itself. And yet we see that Sauron can torture and destroy the very hills. So that, you know... Is, is pretty much all that's mentioned of Bombadil at the Council of Elrond. And even that you see there, like, that was a pretty good amount of information. The Council of Elrond is, is a very long chapter, if you read it, and it's full of lore dumps. But I said all that to, say, to give you the proper context for my theory as to what Tom Bombadil is. So, folks, we get to it. I have given you the summary of his story, and now I'm going to give you my opinions on the matter. I believe that Tom Bombadil is, well, one, first and foremost, he is a spirit of nature. But I think that he's not just 
a spirit of nature. So so he his him being he is a representation of the physical world. But I think that he's not just that. He is a representation of the physical world in the natural state of its harmony with the song of Iluvatar, Tolkien's creator god. I believe that Tom Bombadil is the living manifestation of the song of Iluvatar. And he, it is, it shows itself in this kind of father nature type of character that Tolkien has come up with to represent it. And the reasons why I think that is because, I mean, right there, the thing that I just described to you. It says, power to defy our enemy is not in him unless such power is in the earth itself. Why would it say that? Because Tom Bombadil is the earth itself. Tom Bombadil is nature itself. He is a being of nature. And not only is he a being of nature, but he is also a being of song, right? I haven't, I haven't sang all the songs for you, but if you go through and there's just, there's just constant repetitive song in the chapters where Tom Bombadil has, um, dialogue. And again, that goes perfectly with the whole idea of him being a being of song, this being that was created by Iluvatar's songs. Remember, the universe was brought into existence by song. So if there was a character that was supposed to represent the manifestation of Iluvatar's song, it would make sense for him to be a being that sings all the time. And he has power over nature, right? He has power to command the willow. He has power to command the Barrow White. And the Barrow White is just an evil spirit. The Barrow White is just another being that is brought into existence by Melkor's discord. One thing that exists with within Tolkien's world is that there are some characters that are spiritual beings that don't fit perfectly within the hierarchy uh, the spiritual hierarchy within Tolkien's Legendarium. He doesn't explain, you know, the exact nature of every last character. There's just so many characters to do that with, right? I think Ungoliant is a perfect example of another being that doesn't fit perfectly into the spiritual hierarchy. Uh, Ungoliant is a, is a creature of the void. She is a creature of the discord and she is a creature of, of evil, right? And in the same way that she is kind of, I like to use this example, I did this for a Twitter thread, in the same way that Ungoliant is unaffected by the Silmarils for the same reason that everyone else is affected by them, right? She's not She's not affected by them because she finds them beautiful. She's not affected by them because she finds them powerful. She's just affected by them because she is a creature of lust and wants to consume anything. But it's not like there's anything that's special about the Silmarils that draws her eye, right? In the same way that that happens to her, Tom Bombadil is unaffected by the ring. He's no less affected by the ring than like a rock, like a like a piece of rock or a section of a river would be because Tom is nature. So he doesn't have this and he's nature in its perfect harmony, right? In its perfect harmony with Iluvatar's song. So he is totally uninterested in any benefits that could be afforded him by this ring. And he's indifferent to the struggles of the free peoples of Middle-earth because it's just, it's not something that shows up on his radar, right? Like Gandalf says, no, giving him the ring wouldn't be a great idea because he's indifferent, as indifferent as a rock or a plant would be because Tom is just nature. And there are... Many examples. You know, I, I think about 
the Chronicles of Narnia, when when I read Tom Bombadil's story, I think a lot about the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis has a constant like uh, mention of these spiritual beings of nature, right? He talks about the river gods. He talks about the tree spirits. And this entire section is filled. The story of Tom Bombadil, the hobbits entering the old forest, the entire section is filled with this token giving life to nature in a similar way that C.S. Lewis does in the Chronicles of Narnia, these nature spirits. And I believe that Tom and, and his wife Goldberry are no different than the rest of these like nature spirits. There would have been a lot of back and forth, I'm sure, that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien had discussing this. And I think Goldberry is a great example. So for this, I have Tales from the Perilous Realm. I, I cracked that open and I read that to brush up for this podcast, right? And in Tales of the Perilous Realm, we, we get the adventures of Tom Bombadil. And in that story, we have Tom, who he first is entrapped by Goldberry in the river. And he, he's looking down in the river and Goldberry reaches up from the river. Because remember, Goldberry is, she's, they call her the river daughter. And Tom calls her that multiple times in this chapter. I haven't mentioned it yet, but he does. So Goldberry is the river daughter. She's essentially just a spirit of the river. You know, like C.S. Lewis describes river gods or spirits of the trees in his book. It's the same kind of idea, that kind of mythical, fairy, mysteriousness of a forest. That's, that's what we're getting here. So Goldberry in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which is technically Middle-earth canon, right? In The Adventures of Tom Bombadil... Goldberry reaches up from the river and grabs Tom and, you know, he says, like, he takes command over her as a being of nature and he says, let me go. And then in another segment of the poem, same thing, old man Willow grabs him. He takes authority over this spirit of nature that is messing with him. And then the Willow lets him go. And then there's another part of the story where he gets caught by a bunch of badgers, right? Definitely reminds you of Chronicles of Narnia, you know, these little badger folks that can talk. And in this poem... Tom Bombadil takes authority over the badgers and commands them to let him go. And so on. It happens one other time with, uh, with Barrow, Barrow White uh, in this poem. And this is obviously outside of Lord of the Rings, but you have to take it as canon because it's still the same character. So we have this constant theme of like, you know, his interactions and his control with nature. So his wife, Goldberry, going back to my point in the beginning, is a lot of people mistake her for an elf, but she's not an elf. She's just a being of the water at the same level as like the badgers are creatures of the woods and, and old man Willow is a tree spirit. You know, it's this repetitive theme that Tolkien and C.S. Lewis have of these beings of the wood. You know, they are not... They don't have to fit perfectly in the spiritual hierarchy because they're they're just casual beings of nature that are constant themes that come up, you know, not in just in Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's writings, but the, the writings that inspired them, you know, these these European myths and the these spirits of nature. You know, this is this is just a manifestation of those spirits within Tolkien's legendarium. You know, that they aren't like major power players. Like the for so there are people who think that Tom Bombadil might be a manifestation of Tolkien's God, like in a person because he has some command over nature. And first of all, in one of Tolkien's letters, he had stated that Iluvatar never took form in the physical world. So you can X that theory right off, right there. And also we've seen clearly stated, like 
limits to Tom Bombadil's power. It says that power is not within him to resist Sauron. It says that when everything else falls, you know, um, Tom Bombadil would be the last to fall after Sauron took everything else. And that's, that's just a manifestation of, like, nature eventually succumbing. Like, uh, there was another letter where Tolkien actually refers to Tom, and this was early on, so people question how canon it might be, but Tolkien refers to Tom Bombadil early on to one of, I believe it was one of his publishers, that uh, Tom was a visual representation of the uh, receding areas of nature around Oxford. And, you know, you can take that for what you will. It was early on, and he kind of said it almost tongue-in-cheek um, in the letter, so a lot of people question whether that's really what he meant. But I think that he didn't say that for no reason. You know, so we know that Tom is not Iluvatar. And we know also that he's not a Maya, right? Because Maya are affected by the ring. Sauron is a Maya. He's affected by the ring. Gandalf is affected by the ring. Saruman is affected by the ring. So Tom can't fit in the... Maiar hierarchy because the ring doesn't have any effect on him. So I really just think that it's best to think of Tom as this representation of nature being in perfect harmony and not being interrupted or defiled. So that's my theory on Tom Bombadil as to where he fits and what his nature is in the universe. I believe that he is a spirit of nature and I believe that he is supposed to represent nature in perfect harmony with Iluvatar's song. What nature was supposed to look like before Melkor's discord. So I, that's my official opinion on Tom Bombadil. But I also think that there's another way that we should look at Tom Bombadil. So I think that there's what he is, and then there's also how you should think about it. And I think that at the end of the day, even though I do believe Tolkien gave Tom a proper place that makes sense in the legendarium. I think also that Tom is a character that we shouldn't be thinking too hard about. You know, a lot of people see Tom as an enigma. And Tolkien said, you should see it that way. Because not everything in a story has to be fully explained. You know, Tolkien has so much of the legendarium explained that it's easy to look at a camera, a uh, camera, wow, a character like Tom and be frustrated because you're like, okay, he never said flat out what this thing is. So you're like, oh, what is it? You know, I need to figure out what it is. And you don't always need to figure out what it is. You know, sometimes a writer just wants to include a character that they like in their story and leave a little bit of mystery, a little bit of intrigue with that character. And that was something that Tolkien definitely wanted to do. And something that you have to remember about Tom Bombadil is that he was a character that developed independently of Lord of the Rings. Tom Bombadil is based off of a doll that his son had that he really just enjoyed playing with. And there was, I guess, a story where um, one of his sons had taken the doll and it was just a doll, like a kind of looked like a gnome, you know, it was like a little doll that had a beard and was an old man. And one of his sons had taken this doll and like shoved it in the toilet <laughs> because he didn't like it. And it was the younger son's doll. It was Michael's. And I think Michael had gotten really upset and like Tolkien came in and fished it out of the toilet. And then they, uh, Tolkien thought that was funny. And he was like, you know, I'm going to write like a little poem for my children about this little doll that my son has. And 
that's where the character of Tom Bombadil came from, because he began making little imaginary adventures that this doll went on. He gave the doll a name, and then he gave it imaginary adventures that it went on, and he would tell these stories to his children. For fun, So I think it gave him uh, an affinity for this character. He, he loved it so much because of the connection that it had with his children. So he wanted to include this character in his flagship story, The Lord of the Rings. And I think that really at the end of the day, that's where a lot of the point comes from. Like the point is Tolkien being like, I love this character and I wanted to include him in my story. And you really don't have to think that hard about it. And that's okay too. <laughs> you know, there doesn't have to be a hard answer for everything. And there's been moments of frustration with me where I'm like, man, I wish Tolkien would have just laid out exactly what this is. Um, but you got to remember that it was his story. And this is just a character that he loved and he wanted to include in it. Um, I do think that deep down he knew the real definitions behind Tom Bombadil. And I think that he chose to keep that to himself. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening, guys. If you have any questions or if you think that I missed something, you know, definitely feel free to reach out. Hit me up on Twitter. Send me an email. Uh, what did you think? What are your theories about Tom Bombadil? Let me know.